everyone. Welcome to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding the light after perinatal trauma. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, birth trauma survivor turned podcast host. Today, we're joined by Caitlin McGreas of Beaver Village. After an unplanned cesarean changed the course of her next two deliveries, Caitlin went on to open a new company. I absolutely love this episode because of Caitlin's openness to have hard conversations, even when we don't agree. Her bravery is quite remarkable. Tune in to hear more. I'm here with Caitlin McGrayus today. Thanks so much for deciding to join me today, Caitlin. Oh, it is so my pleasure, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, awesome. Okay, let's start with a little introduction about yourself and your family. I am Caitlin. I have three children, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a 10-year-old. And I had really, really, really different birth experiences with each of them, which sort of put me on the path that I'm on right now. And that's, it's always so exciting to share my story because it is the thing that sort of gets me out of bed every day is, is helping other people understand what they're facing as they give birth, what the realities that exist in our maternal health care system and, and helping get them connected to support. Prior to us recording, you had mentioned that you had an unplanned cesarean. Yeah, That's so right. can we talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you, how the unplanned cesarean came to be, et cetera? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. So I planned to have an out-of-hospital birth center, midwife-supported, unmedicated birth, and it sort of just went the opposite of that, to be totally honest with you. Um, There were many factors, but I'll sort of just try to go chronologically. So I was attending this midwifery practice, and it presented, they presented themselves as midwives that were running their own practice. I never saw a doctor. Um, I only saw midwives. And, And then I went past my due date, and I went for a standard, like, 41 week sonogram. Mm -hmm. My blood pressure was a little high. And so the midwife called and said, okay, um, you know, it's time. It's, it's 41 weeks. It's time. The doctor, the doctor says it's time. (laughs) I was like, oh, what, what doctor, right? Like just, she had never mentioned a doctor before. Um, so I, I was told not, not interacted with, not like asked. I was told it is time to go to the hospital, you are being induced. And I remember standing on the sidewalk in Brooklyn where I was there for my sonogram and just sobbing. It was just this unbelievable, it really caught me off guard. And I think it was like my body's first indication of just how wrong it was going, but I don't think mentally I was there yet, but I was just sobbing. I was just so scared and everything was sort of spiraling out of control before it even began. That's what it felt like for me. Mostly because I had hired midwives to not have that experience. Later on, it really like affected my counseling for my doula clients when, when I eventually became a doula to not just rely on sort of like somebody's credentials, but to really interview each practitioner to make sure they're a good fit for you. Because what turned out to be the truth is that in New York State, birth centers were not allowed to be owned and run by midwives at that time. And I didn't know that. And they didn't tell us that. So it was actually 
an OBGYN, a doctor owned and run clinic that hired midwives to sort of make it look and feel like it was midwifery care, but it was definitely not midwifery wow. care. So I was sort of just told, go to the hospital. So my husband came to meet me, my parents came to meet me, and I started my induction. This is like hilarious now to like look back and say these words, but I started my induction in a C-section recovery room oh, because no. it didn't have enough space for me to have my own L&D room, which was just a special sort of hell, to be honest with you. It was like I was surrounded by people who were moaning and in various states of consciousness and pain levels, and, and it was just it was one nurse for like 20 of us because all she had to do was kind of just make sure people were okay. It, it was not a labor and delivery situation. But the thing that really happened for me is that despite taking the childbirth ed class and despite preparing in the best way I knew at the time, which did not include hiring a doula, unfortunately, and despite like being a strong personality and being independent and being somebody like who's outgoing and not not afraid to tell people what I think. You know, I was like a strong person. I was 27. The whole, the world was mine, right? And I just almost immediately lost my voice, lost my power. Almost immediately, it was just, I was at the, the will of the hospital. I was at the will of the midwife. I was at the will of the nurses. And they did not particularly care about what my experience was going to be about how the birth turned out about what my wishes and desires were and there was no voice and no autonomy and I'm always really careful to tell people like it did end in a c-section my 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 first birth this beautiful out of hospital birth center birth turned into a cytotech induction that six hours later turned into an emergency c-section because when I got the epidural my baby's heart rate did all kinds of crazy things and we needed to get him out. And the thing is though, is that the C-section for me was the best part. The C-section was when I said, I want this baby to be healthy, which is a super toxic statement, by the way, to like say the only thing that matters is a healthy baby, except I was saying that to my midwife. Uh, if I've gone through all of this, at the very least, get me a baby in my arms at the end of yeah. it was what I was saying to her. The, the C-section was an exit plan. The C-section was relief. The C-section was, I can get out of this horrible situation where everyone is treating me with such disregard, such, like, I felt like I was being treated like a child. I was being told I couldn't, um, because I was in so much pain, quote unquote pain, I was uh, not able to use the bathroom. I had to use a bedpan despite not being medicated and being perfectly capable of standing up and walking. Only later on did I realize how absurd it was that if you're birthing, you should be moving and walking as much as possible, quite frankly. Were the nurses telling you you're in all this pain when you really weren't? The C-section recovery room nurse, and she would, with this like super fake cheery voice, oh, oh, oh. No, you're just looking like you're in so much pain. Here's a bedpan. Because I was, because I got double doses of Cytotec 
to bring on my labor. So I went from not feeling anything to being in transition level, like every three minutes, very, very intense contractions that she wouldn't let me move off of my back in the bed because she needed to capture them on the monitors. So there was this like very hospital centric, nurse centric experience where they needed their charting. They needed me to be in one place. They needed me to be quiet and it had nothing to do with my experience and how I wanted to move through my labor and move through my room. I'm so sorry. Thank you. It's, you know, every time I tell the story and I tell it a lot, I, it's a new way of telling it. And I kind Mm -hmm. of like remember new details. So I appreciate the opportunity to share it. And I also have really spent many years now at this point working to make sure that this experience is useful that it, it it just it guides me like I need to make sure that this didn't happen to me just because it was horrible but it happened to me so that I can make sure it doesn't happen to the next person I can make sure people have what they need to avoid it whether that's doulas whether that's information whether that's you know advocacy skills like we there's work to be done um, because this is just sort of standard care this was in a New York City hospital I think I, and I don't know how we're perceived by the rest of the world, but New York City, you know, you think of like progressive, like cutting edge, you know, you think of like, they're doing the best and it's in the maternal healthcare system. New York City is light years behind many, many other places, which is quite awful. So yeah, so I ended up, every single thing that I wanted for my birth was out the window. I was being forced to lay back. I was tethered to the bed with blood pressure monitors, you know, not with chains or anything, but it felt like it. Blood pressure monitors, two monitors, one for uh, heart rate, one for contractions, and then put on those cups that like inflate, they go for to prevent blood clots. So I had those on my legs. Mm -hmm. So I was just, I had multiple points of like keeping me in the bed. I was in transition level labor. I was progressing very quickly, which we would later on realize that that's how my body labors. I go from like zero to 10 very quickly. So I looked at my husband and I said, get me the epidural. I need an epidural. And he had that deer in headlights look of like, we've talked about this multiple times. I know all of your wishes. I know that I'm supposed to talk you out of this. And I just said, this is not how it's supposed to be. Get, I need the epidural because the thing is like I was going to go without the epidural in a birth pool and moving and being in my own body but to to be in this like what felt like torture situation yeah, absolutely and then, not, and then deny myself the tools that are available it was it's just amazing how like we make all these plans for what we want and then in the moment is the only way we can really make the decision so I remember I asked for the epidural the, they told me the residents had to check me. I didn't, at that point, I was just like, do whatever it takes to get me an epidural. I was four to five centimeters. They, they said they could give it to me. And then I remember somebody, probably a nurse said to me, are you sure you want to get an epidural? That means you're going to have to go to an L and D room, which was like one of the strangest parts. There was many strange, strange parts, but it was such a strange sentiment. Like oh, well, of course I want to go to an L&D room. Like, the, I, I don't want to be in the C-section recovery room. That's so odd. It was really odd. I get transferred over to my L&D room, which was beautiful and big. And I remember going to sit on the toilet 
right before I went in the bed to get the epidural. And I sat on the toilet and this moment, I'm kind of just realizing now as I'm sitting here, this moment was sort of pivotal for how the rest of my birthing went, not just that child, but the, the next two, because I sat upright on the toilet and I had multiple contractions because they were coming really, really fast and they were manageable. I, I was handling it. I could have sat on that toilet for an hour. They were, they actually called me in. They said, come on, you got to go. Cause they were, it was, everything was on their timeline. It had mm -hmm. nothing to do with me. The nurse was downright hostile. Quite frankly, she was really awful. Um, the LND nurse that was assigned to me. And I just remember there was this little seed of like, oh, I could do this, right? I could do this. If I'm sitting upright and I'm able to like pee in between and I'm able to like move my body a little bit, I could do this, but I didn't even have the time. Everything just felt really, really fast. It just felt like it was, I was on a runaway train and there was no slowing it down. But that moment absolutely helped me choose differently for my next two births. So I got my epidural, which was horrific. I feel terrible talking about how negative and awful this was, but it was really bad. Um, I got the epidural and my biggest fear in birth was getting the epidural. It was not, I felt like the rest of it was very natural. You know, it's going to hurt probably, but it's not bad hurt, right? It's mm -hmm. like you're just going to release a baby from your body. How bad could it be? My fear of having a needle stuck in my back was pretty high. And I remember they had my husband leave the room and they had a nurse with a pillow. Like, oh, my midwife was there talking me through. She had gone home for all of this, by the way. This is a whole other feeling of like abandonment from my midwife. And as the anesthesiologist is putting the needles into my back, I'm feeling it completely. I'm feeling like I'm getting a needle jammed into my spine and I'm shrieking and I'm jumping. And the anesthesiologist, like everybody else that has interacted with me at this hospital, is annoyed with me. Is it pressure or is it pain? She's asking me. I'm like, it's pain. <laughs> You're putting a needle in my back and I feel it. It was just like, it was just sort of like the cherry on top of this horrible, horrible experience. It was 100% related to how they were treating me and had nothing to do with the labor or the physical sensations or even the medical things that were going on. It was just like people were just being actively kind of hostile to me and annoyed by me and Ugh. directing me in this horrible way that just had lacked empathy and kindness and lacked sort of like just a feeling of supporting me through an incredible transition that I was going through. There was just no room for that for them. It was, I felt very much like treated like an afterthought at best. Um, so after that horrible anesthesiologist, I did get relief and the contraction subsided and I closed my eyes. And when I would open my eyes, my husband, mother, nurse, and midwife all had really horrified looks on their faces because they were all watching the baby's heart rate and my baby's heart rate was going really most of the times when like something's going wrong with the baby that the heart rate is dipping down but my yeah. baby's heart rate was going really high tachycardic he was going up over the 200s and then crashing down to the 100s and then going up 
And the tachycardic is just as dangerous as bradycardic. I'm probably not saying it right, but it's just as, as scary and bad for the baby for it to be going really high as it is to be going low. And I just remember like sort of not being, not being concerned. I was sleeping. I was feeling good. But every time I peeked my eye open, everyone was still there and everyone looked very concerned. So I remember looking at my midwife. She's like having me move, you know, to different sides to try and adjust the heart rate. And I said to her, is everything okay with the baby? And her answer was, we're just going to watch it for another 45 minutes or so. And then we'll call the OB for her opinion. And based on how their faces all looked and what they were telling me was going on, I said, I just want a healthy baby. Which again, is not something I would ever say to anybody else because that's super toxic. It's not just about having a healthy baby. But in that position where I had already suffered this horrible treatment, in this position where every single wish from my birth had already gone completely out the window, at the very least, could you deliver me a healthy baby? Like, come on. After all of this horror, can I just have a freaking healthy baby already? So when I said that, she said, okay, I'll call the OB. We'll do a C-section. And, and it's kind of funny because I think a lot of times people, when I say I had a C-section that was relatively traumatic and I, and then I say I had a transformative, life-altering, spiritual, beautiful VBAC, I think people think it's like how the baby came out. And it had not, for me, it had nothing to do with that. The C-section was literally the first time that anyone listened to me on my team. When I asked to have that healthy baby, no matter what, it was the first time somebody heard me and went into action based on what I said. At that point, did you feel like you had kind of regained your autonomy? Totally. Totally. The C-section, while it was surgery, I didn't want surgery. I was scared. It was, it was an end to this horrible sort of like powerlessness and voicelessness and, and just being completely at the will of everybody else's, you know, desires and whims and moods and whatever. And it really, it felt like an exit. It felt like, okay, I'm going to have my baby soon. And so they wheeled me into the OR and I'm not sure why they do this. I would love to know like sort of how hospital policies come to be what they are, but they don't let your partner in until they're ready to cut you open, which I don't know. Why not just let them sit there? It like, it just makes no sense to me. Anyway, um, I have lots of hospital policies I'd love to sort of dig into and get some input on. Um, so they had him and it was very, they rolled me in, I remember flat on my back and it was very like what I thought an OR would be. It was very yeah. cold. And it was very like, there was this huge, large, round ring light. It was like a ginormous mm -hmm. ring light, like what we use for Instagram, that was over me. And it just, it felt like a stereotypical OR. And nobody talked to me. Nobody like was helpful or kind or comforting. And then they, they brought him in. And I just like, I had to kind of crane my neck back to look up. And I said, just talk to me about Ivan. Ivan was our dog at the time. And I said, let's just talk about Ivan. Cause I knew I sort of needed to like not be in the room thinking about how scared I was. The other thing that actually I just remembered right now is that 
due to everything that was happening, due to the epidural, due to how quickly my body was moving and labor, due to all the drugs they had given me, I was shaking uncontrollably, which is something that often happens after birth for people, but it was happening during the labor for me. I think it was, it's pure stress. It's just like, because interestingly enough, I didn't shake at all during my home birth, even afterwards. So it's, it's really related to stress, this like uncontrollable shaking. And I remember that they strapped my arms down and I was shaking and like shaking uncontrollably into the straps. And it was just, that was pretty rough. That was really scary. And so the baby comes out, he goes to the, you know, the thing for the pediatricians to look at him. My midwife goes and takes a picture of him, I think on my husband's phone and brings it over. So now I'm getting sewed up and I have a picture of my baby. And I was like, okay, cool, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's this really, I struggled for a long time with feeling like I didn't give birth. And again, this is something like I would never say to someone who had a C-section, you didn't give birth. But for my personal experience, it mm-hmm. just didn't feel like I had done anything. It's like I walked into the hospital, a, a pregnant person, and I had this horrific experience. And then I just sort of left being handed a baby. And, and it was really hard to sort of put those pieces together. I didn't see him come out. I didn't feel him come out. I just then was he was bundled up completely so I didn't get to like know them and like the thing that we do where we just like need to connect with our babies and so I remember like knowing so much about like the microbiome and wanting to like connect with him and touch him so when they brought him over to me finally totally bundled up so all I could see was his head I remember my husband says I tried to eat his face but it wasn't that it was just that that was the only I could only access his face so I just kind of kissed him and mouthed him all over because I needed I just needed to connect with him and then they took him Mm. away so he was out of the room and I'm laying there shaking and they're sewing me up and they did a great job I'll tell you that I had a wonderful recovery from the c-section um but I was flipping out because my arms were hurting and it was shaking and everything was going on and without talking to me about it because this is apparently the culture of that hospital the anesthesiologist gave me drugs to make me pass out he gave me anti-anxiety drugs so my husband was watching me and I'm talking and then I'm like oh and I pass out and he was like is she okay but the anesthesiologist knows he just gave me something to do that but there was never a discussion about like I'm going to end your consciousness right now like it's just yeah it's absolutely mind boggling that this is how medical care is administered quite frankly well and imagine what that moment was like for your husband I mean horrifying yeah like you just see your wife pass out I think he was at that point still holding the baby I do remember they took the baby before I was done but I think he was holding the baby and just like looked over and I was done and it's like it was very jarring for both of us I think for all, all three of us quite frankly um and so they I remember they like finished up with that, whatever they were going to finish up. My husband went to the nursery to sort of like make sure the baby's okay. Make sure they weren't giving him a bath. Make sure, you know, just, just you're on the baby. My mom came to me in the C-section recovery room where I had just been, which was quite ridiculous. Um, And then I got the baby and I started my breastfeeding journey there. And there was sort of this like, I will make this breastfeeding thing work 
if it kills me because every single other thing had gone out the window. Mm-hmm. We did. We breastfed for 21 months with the help of a, a, a breastfeeding literate pediatrician who did not tell me to formula supplement on like day three of life when he was losing all kinds of weight and I was all stressed out. But yeah, that was the experience. And then to top it off, I mean, there's many other things. Oh my goodness. Oh, let me tell you the, the, this was the most traumatizing part for my brother and sister-in-law who were on the phone when this happened. But I have to tell you like how bad all the treatment was. This didn't even phase me. We were just meeting our baby. They had just gotten us back to our maternity room. We were just getting to know our baby still awake now. So we had been awake all day Friday, all overnight Friday. And now it's Saturday morning at like 9am. The C-section was at 5am. So Mm -hmm. we've just been awake for over 24 hours, just had a baby, just had a C-section and an anesthesiologist resident with like five other anesthesiologists come into the room. And he says, so when we removed the epidural, a little black plastic piece was left in your spine. And yeah, yeah, this is, I'm telling you, this isn't even the thing that comes to mind until I like go deep in this way. Um, And my, we were like on the phone with or FaceTiming my brother and sister-in-law, or maybe they were there. I think they were in the room and they, they like went and like tried to record the whole thing because they were asked to leave the room. Oh, it's all coming back to me. They were asked to leave the room and the anesthesiologists all came in and they told me that they left a little black plastic piece of something in my spine by accident. And so now I'm sitting there like bleary eyed, brand new mother being told there's something in my spine, which remember the epidural was like my most fear based like moment of this whole thing. Mm. For good reason, apparently they, and so I started asking questions. They said, well, if you notice redness or if you notice a stiff neck or like, just these are some of the symptoms. Like, I'm like, could I be paralyzed from this? Well, it's very rare that that happened. You know, it was, I didn't feel reassured by any of the things I was hearing from them. But what else are you going to do except go, uh, okay, thanks for letting me know. Like, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know what to do from here. So they all leave the room. My brother and sister-in-law come back and they've like recorded the whole thing from the hallway. And I don't know the timing on this, but like, whatever, it was probably an hour or so somebody calls or an anesthesiologist like comes in and is like, Oh, by the way, they found the piece that they thought was in your spine. You're fine. It's like, Oh, okay. You couldn't do that first. Couldn't like be thorough before telling me that I have something floating in my spine that could possibly really impact my ability to walk or move or not be in pain. Yeah. So that was pretty terrifying. And, and yeah. And then uh, two days later, I was discharged from the hospital and my husband was already back at work because he didn't have paid leave. We didn't have the money for him to take unpaid leave. And he was in this like really special program. It was like a summer program where he couldn't take days off. And so I was my, my release from the hospital, my entry into motherhood was my mother taking me home from the hospital in Brooklyn back to my apartment in Astoria, Queens, and just sort of being like, okay, this is the new normal. And I, at the time, remember, I would say, I think it was mostly hopeful. I would just keep saying at various points to my mother, I would just go, this isn't traumatizing. This isn't tragic. 
this isn't traumatizing. This isn't traumatic. Like while we were going through this ridiculously traumatizing experience, um, but partially because I, I know how important mindset is. I know how important yeah. like what you believe to be true is true. You know, I think there was just some part of me that was like, this is not bad. But then as I sort of, you come, you unfold yourself from that experience, it really just became like, oh, wow, that was pretty awful. That was pretty awful. And I remember too, I, um, as part of my healing and part of my, my curiosity to know like what was happening, I remember I requested all of my hospital records and I would spend hours poring over like what the, I had hundreds of pages. I, I was supposed to just get my surgical report. I think this happened when I got pregnant again supposed to get my surgical report, which is like a two page thing, but I accidentally like got all of my hospital records, but then I just got to like read them and see and see what they were writing and see. It was really, um, it was a really awful experience that at least I got my baby out of, but every other part of it was totally underwhelming. And I was really caught off guard by how much I thought I had prepared myself to avoid it and how that didn't actually make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely hear that. I had an unplanned C-section with my first and I actually didn't even realize it was traumatic until I had my second birth trauma. And then looking back, I was like, oh, wow, like that, that was really bad too. Obviously not as severe as fighting for my life, but Mm -hmm. still really hard. In the C-section recovery room, did they do the fundal massage for you? Yes. It's awful. Yeah. She comes in, I don't know, maybe every hour or so, 30 minutes, whatever. And I'm like, y'all just cut open my stomach Mm -hmm. and you want to push on it? Yep. I mean, in retrospect, like it was important because I did have to get a blood transfusion. But like, I just remember the nurse every time she would come in, I would just go, oh, dear God, please no, please no, please no. Yeah. You know, there's a way to do things though. Like they came in and did it to me, but nobody was like apologetic. Nobody like, not that you have to apologize for doing your job, but nobody was like, Hey, I know this is uncomfortable, but it's what we have to do to keep you safe. You know, like, I feel like that would have just been reassuring. They were just for me in that experience, which was so different from my, my subsequent two birds. It was just, just like, yeah, I was annoying them with my presence and there was very little um, sweetness. There was very little kindness. Um, and there was just a lot of sort of being annoyed by the tasks that I was making them do. And compassion. I think that's imperative. No matter yeah. the reason you enter a hospital, compassion is an absolute game changer. Yes, absolutely. I could not agree more. Yes. I feel like we need to take a moment because that, that was a lot. It's a lot. And I, again, I feel, I know this is sort of the nature of the podcast, but it's, it's hard to mm-hmm. put all of that out there because it's my story. It's my story. It's my journey. And like somebody else could have gone through that entire process with the exact same things happening to them. And they might have felt so cared for. They might have felt, you know, so respected or, or weren't expecting. I just, I think my personality required a little bit more of like kindness. I think I was much more anxious than I understood. Mm. I absolutely had postpartum anxiety that I quite literally did not realize or have diagnosed. I still haven't had it diagnosed formally until I had my second baby. 
And I remember I always, when I have my babies, I always call my mom in like the first two times in the hospital and the third time she was there. So she was right there for it. And I just sort of like vomit out the whole story. Like I just get really manic and chatty and just like, oh, this is everything that's happening. And I remember being like, mom, I love him. My second baby. I love him so much, but I feel calm. Like I was confused about how I could love my baby and also feel really chill because with my first baby, I was in such a heightened state of anxiety due to probably just having a heightened state of anxiety plus the entire unfolding of the events. Mm-hmm. I was just, I couldn't put my guard down in the hospital for sure. And then that sort of, that was my entry into motherhood. So how do you then go and just be this calm, like earth mother? It wasn't happening. I was sitting in my apartment then worried about him. I was having intrusive thoughts about him, like somebody dropping him and his head cracking open or the dog eating him. Like I was just having these really intrusive thoughts that were not real or true, but I didn't, my deep, 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 incredible, eternal, maternal love. That's really hard to describe to somebody who hasn't experienced it. Like I always describe it as like um, the Grinch when the Grinch's heart grows three sizes. That's (laughs) That's how having a baby feels to me. It's like, this is my heart now. It's the fullest capacity. And then, whoa, oh my God, here we are. New capacity, new love that I didn't even know was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so looped and linked and entangled with anxiety for my first that when it wasn't for my second, I was like legitimately confused about the lack of anxiety while also having the love present. So yeah, so it's a lot. It's just, it's a lot. And it's it's hard to sort of say it all out loud when, mm-hmm. when, when there's also so much more, right? Like I went on, I was fueled by this. I was, I learned. And you know what? Quite frankly, I think, I really believe there's a reason for everything. And I don't, I don't for me anyway, right? I can only speak to me. And I feel like the reason that happened to me is because I was a special ed teacher at the time. Mm-hmm. And I loved, loved being a special ed teacher loved being with the children. Um, but I was not called into it. You know, people are like, this is my calling teaching's my calling. And I'm like, I don't know, I like it. and I'm good at it. But it's not the thing that like keeps me up at night. It's not the thing that that drives me that makes me so excited. And I hadn't had that yet. I was sort of like a passionate person, but didn't have a direction. Mm. And this event, this lived experience, which there's really no replacement for lived experience agreed this lived experience set me on this path where I'm going to wake up every day for the rest of my life and figure out how I'm making that not happen for the next person and that has looked different like across and it's going to look different across my life but that will always be the goal because because it is shameful that it happened to me it's shameful that that was standard practice you know my birth story and the trauma behind it especially sort of drives me because there wasn't a horrible medical event. I didn't almost die. I had the standard American healthcare experience for mothers. I was told to lay flat on my back. I was given drugs. I was ignored. And then I was told I need a C-section. And the whole time I was sort of treated like an afterthought. And that is the standard American medical experience for mothers right now. And I really want to change that as much as I can. Yeah. And you know, I personally struggle with the sentiment that everything happens for a reason because probably doesn't agree with me on that one. No, and that's fine. That's fine. I mean, you're entitled. I don't take offense to that. You're entitled to your opinion. So I appreciate that you added the 
the second part of for me, I can only say for me, but I think for me, like, it's really hard to say my AFE happened for a reason, you know, fighting, literally fighting for your life, fighting to be a mother, especially like several years later has been really hard to wrap my mind around. And, you know, I am a person of faith, so I wholeheartedly believe that this was part of God's plan, but I think that I'm just not in that place that I've figured out what that is yet. And, you know, if that's the po- just doing the podcast, that's okay. But I think it's okay for us to like, I appreciate having these conversations because it gets me thinking, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I've always been kind of an old soul, so to speak. And like, very, I'm, I have anxiety too. So I'm definitely like an overthinker as well. And so I think like, hearing other people's stories, I almost always take something away from someone's story. And I think like my twin sister as well had a uterine rupture and that put her on the path to becoming a doula and trying to remember. I think she decided to become a doula after her second and then she had the uterine rupture with her third. So it was a, but anyways, so now like she's doing doula work and she too is a postpartum doula. But I think like finding that fuel and that's really kind of like you, she had this awakening and I think I just haven't figured out what that is yet. I don't know. I feel like, yeah, having these conversations, it's, I don't, I feel like our society is too touchy on like, well, you disagree with me, so you're wrong and you're a bad person because (laughs) you disagree with me. Like That's a whole other podcast, but yes, I totally, I think we're all allowed to have our own experiences and they can all be valid and they can Mm -hmm. be controversial and they can be completely opposed and we can all sort of support each other through that, which is why I am careful to say for me, because I will often say, well, my C-section was the best part of my birth. It's not about how the baby comes out. And other people are like, well, I was super traumatized by mine, you know? And it's like, it's your story. You're on your own path and you feel like you haven't found your path. Like, I mean, Hey, we're sitting here right now. You're doing something. It requires an openness. Exactly. Came a doula after my VBAC because I was just like, how in inside of two years can I have completely opposite birth experiences? My doula supported birth. My VBAC was like, it was spiritual. I went to the stars. I was primal. I was just connected to myself. I would do that labor every day for the rest of my life. It was wow. so beautiful and I remember saying to my husband at the end of it I'm like I didn't feel any pain and he was like he, he's like oh you look like you were in pain I'm like I I remember intensity I remember hard work but it wasn't pain it was just something else entirely um but but that's just like we're all on our own journeys you know mm-hmm. like it's not it doesn't mean that that's what it is for somebody else and I think that there's room for everybody to have their own way. Well, and two, like those two truths, you said the C-section was the best part for you. And you may have someone else that you talk to that's like, well, that was the most traumatic for me. Well, why can't those two truths even be in our society, but not only be in our society, be within ourselves? Absolutely. You know, yes. like feeling gratefulness and sadness coincide. I have like, said to so many of my doula clients, you can hate your birth and love your baby. You can be so traumatized and upset about what happened to you 
and be absolutely over the moon for your little one. Like it's just so many conflicting ideas or that seem conflicting Mm -hmm. can actually exist within us at the same time. And I think that's part of like, sort of to take a tangent here, that's part of why these conversations are important. That's part of why getting in the room with other people, like in the room is important because when we're all on social media and we have memes and we have little comments, we all get this like black and white version, this really non-nuanced version that's very blunt and not true. It's just not the truth, right? Like, mm-hmm. and when we start telling our stories and we we can see the connectedness that we have, you can see parts of your story in me, and I'm sure I could find parts of my story in you. And and that really unites us. And what really unites us is this experience of becoming mothers. It is, yeah. it is, there's just nothing like it in the world. And when you, when you like sort of come back from all the judgment and you just recognize that we're all going through this together and, you know, despite all the like circumcision and vaccines and, you know, formula feeding and breastfeeding and homeschooling, whatever, like there's all these like quote unquote battles the thing that I have always remembered, and I really learned this through supporting people in my doula work, is every single one of us, no matter what decision we end up making for ourselves or our family, is trying our best. We're just Absolutely. trying our best. That's the universal part of motherhood. Every mm-hmm. single one of us trying our best. Our best looks different. Our best you know, leads to different choices. But none of us is going, eh, this isn't really important, right? Like most of us are are trying really hard and are thinking about things deeply and are, are really some, some of us are just trying to stay afloat and others of us are, you know, making bento boxes with star shaped fruit, but there's like, <laughs> there's just this universal thing of all of us trying the best that we can. And I think we have to give ourselves a lot more grace than we do right now. I, I a hundred percent agree. After having my se- my severe birth trauma, so my second delivery, my recovery has been a multi-year process. And even but even prior to that, I was not the star-shaped sandwich in the bento box type of mom. And it took me a long time to realize, you know, it I, I'm just not that mom. But there are so many other things I can do for my kids. Or a great example is the freaking dentist. <laughs> I've been meaning to find a dentist for my kids for like six months. And it's just like life literally goes by in a flash. And you're just like, it's already been six months. How did that happen? And, you know, I'm just like, my kids need to go to the dentist. And, you know, but there are so many other things that I am able to do on the throughout the day. But I think realizing, I think you made a good point of pulling back the judgment and because you're right, we really are all just trying our best, whatever that recovery from birth trauma mm-hmm. or entering motherhood looks like, like we really are. It's true. And we're all doing a good job. Like there is no, yeah, there is no, like you get a gold star, but you don't. Like, we're all doing, we all deserve gold stars. I like to look at my progress as a parent generationally, actually, because I don't think I can compare myself to other people in my life. And it's really not a fun exercise either, by the way, to like compare externally. But I look at how my husband grew up and what his conditions of childhood were. And I look at my conditions of childhood. I had divorced parents. I had my mom working three jobs. I had, you know, there was just like a lot of 
there was a lot of trauma in the childhood. Not mm-hmm. and again, not sort of overt. I wasn't being abused or anything, but it was just it wasn't a loving home, um, a loving two parent home. And my husband was same. His father left when he was six months, and his mother was an immigrant going for her master's degree. And so he was sort of like, he was a little bit discarded, you know, he just sort of had to make his way. And then I look at our two children who are, or sorry, our three children. <laughs> Sometimes you forget about the middle one. Um, you, I look at our three children who are being raised imperfectly, of course, in a, a home with so much love, mm-hmm. so much love with warmth, with healthy food, plentiful food, with a safe neighborhood, with friends and a great school and lots of activities. And, and I just think, you know, we're not doing this perfectly. I yell sometimes, you know, like we don't have enough money to do the things I would love to do, but, but they're having a wonderful childhood and across the generations, we're, we're making it better. We're breaking a lot of patterns. And that is what I like to compare myself to when I'm feeling maybe like I'm not doing enough. It's like, you know what? We are doing enough. We're doing better than the people before us did. And that is by design. That's not a knock on our ancestors, but that's by design, right? What do you want for your children? You want them to have better than you had. Yeah. I actually remember my dad saying that to me, like when I was, I think my earliest memory of that is like when I was in middle school, you know, like he instilled that into us from a very young age. And I grew up in an alcoholic home and yeah, same thing. Mm -hmm. My, my husband grew up in an alcoholic home. Um, same thing. We we do drink, but we drink very minimally and very responsibly. And we are trying to, I like to call it breaking those chains because it, for me, the imagery, it sticks a little better. But yeah, it's, it's so important mm-hmm. to pull back and recognize, even if you yelled literally all day long, like hopefully there was at least one hug where your child still felt loved. I'm sure that they did. And actually, when I do yell, I apologize. I let them know, you know, and I, Mm -hmm. it's, we talk about it and I, uh, we make a plan or I make a promise. And, you know, there's just like, there's, there's an attempt at healing beyond that. There's not, um, I try to not make that the norm, even though it happens more than I'd like, because I'd like it to happen zero, but it's just not the reality of my situation. But we do talk about it pretty openly and try to repair sort of on the spot or as soon as we can and they the repair by seeing an adult apologize for their behavior right which I didn't get so much as a kid I don't I don't remember the adults in my life sort of leveling with me there was oh I try to break that up a little bit as well which feels good yeah we absolutely can that's amazing well thank you so much Caitlin I absolutely I cannot express enough how much I enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. Same, Kathy. Same. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in today. We kindly ask you to head over to your favorite podcasting platform to leave us a review. It really helps with searchability and finding different podcasts. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, and you've been listening to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast but we're holding space and finding light after perinatal trauma. Bye-bye.